Welcome to the Bulls Beat Podcast Show, the Chicago Bulls Podcast. Welcome back to the Bulls Beat Bulls fans. Doug Donis here with you discussing our Chicago Bulls, and I got a few random NBA topics. They're a little bit older NBA topics for the most part, but they're things I wanted to try and talk about now when you don't have the heat of the moment in them, but they were like really popular at the at the time. So I was going to get into a couple of things a little bit older. I won't spend too much time on that. Then I'm going to discuss a little bit about the Bulls defense and their offense, and I'm going to discuss then a little bit about each of the different players. So let's just jump in. We'll maybe hit the random NBA topics last, since that way if you just don't care about old random NBA topics that I just feel like talking about, you can skip it. And we're going to start off with a little bit of review of the Bulls season and what they were doing and how things went. And so one of the things I think that is surprising to a lot of people to learn if they are aware of it and have learned it at all is if you go over to Basketball Reference, one of my favorite sites, one of everyone's favorite sites, and you look up the Chicago Bulls, they would say, hey, positive net rating. So plus 1.3, 13th out of 30. It's a real simple way of saying the Bulls by net rating were the 13th best team in the league. If you actually just remove that uh, 140-point win when uh, Durant got traded from Brooklyn, it like drops a half point off the net rating on the whole season. Um, but anyway, regardless of that, it's kind of in the middle of the pack in this sort of like peer- group of teams that can go either way. I've often said throughout the season the Bulls were a team that did not perform record-wise up to what you would expect based on uh, the, you know, the kind of like advanced metrics. And I still think that was true as a team that kind of underachieved a little bit. Uh, they were 113.5 in offensive rating, which was 24th, and they're 112.2 in defensive rating, which was fifth. And I think that's just sort of one of those things that surprises people because you look at the big three of the Bulls with Vooch, DeMar, and Zach, and you're like, yeah, three offensive only guys. How do we not have a great offense? And how do we have a great defense? And so to clear that up a little bit, one of the things the Bulls do uh, really well uh, is uh, they defensive rebound. So if you start looking at offensive rating and you start looking at how this is formed, you look at the play types that generate the most efficiency and you get offensive rebounds like are, are tremendously efficient shots. And by limiting the opportunities teams have for offensive rebounds, it makes a really big difference. The other thing the Bulls do really well is they get back on defense in transition. And so they're always back. And so teams are getting much fewer baskets on transition. And then the Bulls, because they don't pass the ball a whole lot and they don't move the ball a whole lot, they also tend to have fewer turnovers. And so teams are getting fewer transition plays that way. So you defensively rebound really great. You have few turnovers. And what you're really doing is you're taking maybe two of the most efficient types of offense for the opposing team, kind of like out of their mix compared to what they might normally get. Their actual half-court defense, though, is pretty poor. They're actually worse than average, and no matter what you want to break down the half court, they're worse than average. But what they excel at is not turning the ball over, not giving teams lots of easy shots. And so if you project that into a playoff series, the Bulls don't have a defense that's likely going to travel real well. Like if you're just getting down where each team slows the game down a little bit, the Bulls' half court defense is still probably worse than their opponent's half court defense. So it's just kind of good to know how those numbers were formed. You know, this was definitely a very strategic setup. And so when you look at it that way and you look at, you know, if you're going to not turn the ball over much, and part of that is also you're not passing the ball a lot. you got guys who pound the ball and can hang on to it more, and, and that generates fewer turnovers. And then you get back on defense instead of chasing the offensive glass, and lo and behold, the Bulls are one of the worst offensive rebounding teams in the league. Uh, 
you look at those things and you start thinking like, well, if we're not taking risks on offense to try and get easy baskets, we're probably going to get fewer easy baskets. And if we're also uh, not getting offensive rebounds because we just always get back on defense rather than crashing the offensive glass, probably that's going to take away a lot of our opportunities for these really good shot types. And I, and you also see that. And that's why the Bulls' offense is really somewhat poor, even though you know their th- big three guys are individually have great true shooting percentages. They're getting you know really efficient scoring. Uh, but they're then not getting a lot out of the other guys because they're not setting up all these other guys for wide open looks. And then maybe the, another thing we all know is they just don't really have great shooters. So they don't have a lot of other options to then create good looks out of uh, these, these passes that could come, you know, they get the pass in the corner and you've got guys who are too scared to shoot. And so that's kind of like a big problem. So it's just sort of nice to understand I guess the underpinning reasons why these things are the way they are. And if I was coaching the Bulls, and I'm not a coach, and I'd be, probably be a god-awful coach if I was a coach. But when I think about these types of trade-offs in my head, and, and you know, clearly intentional, I think probably pretty good, right? Like, would you want to have a super high passing offense when you, you know, it's going to generate lots of really good looks for your role players when your role players are all poor shooters? Like, probably not. <laughs> It's probably not a good approach. So I think this is actually kind of okay, you know, but it's worth noting that the Bulls don't really have a terrible half-court offense, and they also don't have a, a, ter- or a tremendous half-court defense. So those, those numbers are kind of like a little bit of lies, and I think that's just worth talking about. Uh, so let's kind of go through the players. We're going we're gonna to go through Vooch and Kobe White first, and maybe Io DeSumo first. Because those guys are the ones you're going to have to make decisions on. And, and to some extent, Javante Green as well. I think if they want Javante Green back, if Green's healthy, they can just get him at the minimum, though, given how much time he missed this year. So we'll see if they end up keeping Javante, which will in some ways be an interesting litmus test on how they're going to run the offseason. Because I feel like Javante Green on a minimum salary is an okay player. But if you need to add shooting, you know, like you only have a limited number of roster spots. And if you're going to give one back to Javante Green... While you still have Derek Jones Jr., who at least said he's going to opt in. It's not official yet, but said he's going to opt in. It's going to be really hard to, to find any other way to add shooting, even at the minimum. Like even if you go for like a, a guy who you feel can shoot at the minimum but isn't a great shooter otherwise. Uh, so we're going to start with Vooch. One of the interesting things about Vooch, and this will trend a little bit into Damar, who maybe, maybe I'll do Damar next after Vooch because I think there's some points that, that fit both these guys. Vooch is a good player, but he's a player that you have to build a roster around. And I would use that same statement around DeMar. So your two best players are guys you have to build a roster around. And when we acquired Vooch, there was a thought, like this is going to be a good stretch five, good three-point shooting big man. You know, he's in the midst of that really great season. And it turns out that was the only good three-point shooting season he had in his career. You know, so far. I mean, his career is not over. Maybe he'll throw another one down. And that would be a huge improvement for the Bulls if he did. But, you know, basically he isn't putting up the same percentages, you know, from three as he was able to that one year where he was at uh, 40% total. He was 31.4% last year for the Bulls, 34.9% this year, which seems like kind of respectable, except it's not really because he's only shooting like super wide open ones. Uh, but also his attempts are down per 36 minutes. So the year he was 40%, 6.7 attempts 
per 36 minutes, which is pretty high volume of attempts. And one of the things the Bulls struggle with is attempts. 4.9, you know, last year, or I guess two years ago, and now 4.5 this past year. So he's lowering his attempts, and that's probably reasonable based on how well he's shooting. Like, you don't, you don't want a guy shooting seven times a game, you know, if they're only going to put up 32% from three. Like, that, that becomes a negative unless they're doing something else, like they're crazy creating off the dribble. You know, like if you're Trey Young and you're shooting that many, it's kind of okay because it's, you know, a mix in the shot type you use to, to generate all your other shot types. But that's not really true for Vooch. He's just an outlet shooting open ones. So you got to actually hit those and be consistent. So, you know, he's, he's lowering his attempts a bit. He, he passes out of these shots quite a bit more. And, and, and it's probably all fine. It's probably appropriate, you know, that he does that. But when Vooch was maybe going to be a really good three-point shooter and, and you could hope that that 2021 season was legit and that that was the guy he was, you know, if Vooch was a 40% three-point shooter at 6.7 attempts per game, even if they're open, then that would change a lot, right? Because now Vooch is a great complement to DeMar. Now DeMar is going to work inside all the time. Vooch can work outside all the time. And that, that works out fine. And Zach's a good compliment. And, but that, that's not the case now. So now we talk a lot about Vooch in the post, you know, Stacy King loves to talk about Vooch in the post. And Vooch in the post has been pretty good this year. It was pretty poor actually prior to that, but it was, it was pretty good this year and it worked pretty well. But now the problem is Vooch and DeMar now are kind of occupying a lot of the same space. It's a lot harder, you know, to build offensive continuity through this. And so now we are trending towards this, offensive sets that don't really you know fall less than the sum of the parts you know they, like the players aren't optimized working together and they've, they've not found a way to unlock that and it's a lot harder to unlock that you know and with these two guys playing in that type of way and so you know looking at what you're going to do with Vooch this next year I, I think I said in the last show you basically have to keep him whether you want to keep him long term or you just want to sign him and trade him at the deadline you, if you let Vooch go and you let Kobe go and you let Io go, maybe we care a little less about Io depending on how you feel, then you're going to have like $16 million to replace all of them. And you're just not going to get good players to do that. You're going to need a starting center and you're going to need a backup center maybe. Uh, and you're going to need that shooting. You're just not going to be able to do all that with $16 million. So your best case is probably to keep Vooch. And so... You're going to keep them, and now it really just comes down to how much you're going to have to pay to do it. And I was looking around the league, and I start looking at, like, who else is going to pay Vooch money? And I think if I'm the Bulls, this is one I just wait out. I just wait out. Be like, all right, Vooch, here's your $13 million a year. You know, we'll go a couple couple mil above the mid-level exception. So we're offering him more than all the, the good teams can offer him. And, and then just say, like, yeah, here's $13 million. See what else you can find on the market. Because I, I just don't think there's going to be teams out there who are like, yeah, you know what, I'd, I want to pay Vooch $20 million. Like, I, just, I think probably you can play a little bit of hardball there. There's not tons of cap room out there. There's not lots of places that are like, you know what we want is, you know, a center that is quasi-efficient and really terrible on defense and, you know, is getting older. Like, I just don't think there's going to be – Lots of stuff out there above the middle of exception. And maybe you could even play hardball, like just, yeah, whatever. We'll give you four years, you know, 48 million or whatever. Four years, 50 million, a little bit above the middle of exception. Maybe you try and go less for years, a little bit more money. We'll see. But I play hardball. The other thing about Vooch beyond the, you know, that makes him difficult. And I say players that 
you need to play a certain way around any guys around him. So now once Vooch is your center, you need to get shot blocking somewhere else. You need to get rim protection somewhere else. He can only play drop coverage on defense. He can't do other things. And so now you're kind of like stuck. Like my center can only kind of do one scheme. And that's a decent scheme. It's maybe maybe drop coverage has become one of the most popular defensive schemes in the NBA. So that's not so bad. But you're like super limited. And now you need different things out of the players around him too to cover up for the things he doesn't do well. And that just puts you in, in, in a tricky spot. And so now we roll into DeMar and it's like, all right, well, here's a guy doesn't defend at, you know, at this point. And, and maybe that's just just how it is with him. Like he, he's a little older now. Maybe he doesn't have the athleticism to, to put all the defense. Not that he was ever known as a great defender, but you know, a little bit now it's probably even harder even if he tries to put forth the effort. He has to carry a lot of offensive load, so maybe a little bit worn down. You know, wants to operate in the mid-range and – you know, so it's like he's not a he's, he's a willing passer, but he's not like a visionary passer. He's not going to find guys in their spots. He's he's just going to pass out here or there. So, you know, you, you look at Demar. It's like all right, well, you also need good defenders around him. You know, he can be maybe your one guy on the floor who can't shoot, and maybe he's good enough to be that one guy who can't shoot. But so it's like using a space that's maybe you only got room for maybe one and a half guys in that space, and Demar and Vooch are. Probably two guys. Maybe maybe you could say they're one and a half guys because Vooch can play outside a little bit. But that, that creates these different challenges. And and so now you've got two guys you kind of have to build everyone else around, and that becomes really difficult. Now, we get into Zach, and Zach is sort of the answer for a lot of this in a lot of ways. Like, Zach is the type of guy who could kind of fit next to anyone. I think Zach's super, super willing to play off the ball. He's a great shooter. He can take over the offense at periods of time for you. He can, he can attack. You know, I think, I think Zach's actually a, a good and willing passer. You know, the, the defensive stuff is a problem for him. The thing I like about Zach, maybe, is it feels like, and there's some discussion recently about Trey Young for Zach Levine. And it made this point on the Bill Simmons podcast, and they weren't talking about Trey Young versus Zach Levine, but they were talking about kind of Trey Young. As it's like Trey Young is a really bad Batman, and he can't be Robin. Like like Trey Young is actually not a good shooter. People think he's a good shooter, but he's really not like a good shooter. And if he's not just jacking up tons and tons of shot and using all your usage, he's just like a younger, non-defensive version of Russell Westbrook, in a lot of ways. Like he's just gonna take on all your offense. He'll pile up lots of stats, but he's probably not gonna generate more wins for you. And so Zach Levine is also a guy who's not historically generated many wins, right? And the thing I think about Levine is if he has to play the number one option, I think Trey Young is better. He's better at it. Trey Young's better at it. He's a better passer, better, better score. Like just, he's just better at it. He's, he's going to do more for your offense than Zach Levine is. But if you actually got lucky enough to have a true Batman in there, Zach would just mold into the perfect Robin. Like if Zach was on, Golden State and had to be Clay Thompson. Zach could be Clay Thompson, but could Trey Young be Clay Thompson? No. And so maybe you could say if you're the Bulls, well, we're probably not going to get a Batman, so you'd rather have Trey Young, and that's going to lock in our ability to continually lose in the first round, which is maybe what our management wants anyway. And you know, if that's your goal, like I kind of get it. So I think Trey Young's a better player. I think Zach has a more obvious niche on a championship caliber team, and that would kind of be like how you would maybe look at those two things if you're looking but that's sort of my thought I liked Zach this year a lot 
you know, one of the interesting things, Zach, that you, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this to you, and you're not even going to believe it. And I'm going to take Casey Johnson's word for it because I heard it on his podcast, so I'm not looking at it. Zach was third in the NBA in total minutes played this year. At least that's what they said on Bulls Talk. Uh, so I think that was like an insane, insane outcome for Zach that he was able to do that. For a guy we thought might not be able to stay healthy to be third in the NBA minutes, it was just tremendous. After the All-Star break, just was phenomenal. Just dominated. Like, he, like people may call it the Pat Bev effect. <laughs> this was the Zach Levine was a badass effect, you know, after the break. That, that's really what it was. Zach Levine was the best player on the team. It was, it was phenomenal after the break. You know, the first half of the season, especially early on when he seemed to still be trying to get back from the knee surgery, I think we just underrated what that was. I know I did. I don't want to you know, put my thoughts on you, but I definitely underrated that. Like he had the surgery in May. It was one of those arth- arthroscopic things that usually is like six weeks long. This was a super long period of time afterwards that he would just be totally fine. And he clearly wasn't. Clearly wasn't himself until you know, we got later in the season and you know, missed a couple games early. And that was really scary. But in the end, you know, despite that uh, two games missed at the beginning of the year, Zach Levine you know, showed he was worth it. Showed he was a really great player. So um, happy to continue with Zach. I think you can start looking for trade packages with Zach. I think you can look for trade packages for any of these guys, really. With DeMar, you know, I mentioned last week, you start trying to shop him and you start trying to look, well, who would want him and where would he go and what would you get back? And the answers to those questions are just so depressing because DeMar's maybe not a good enough guy to build a team around, but it's a guy you kind of have to build a team around. And your team probably isn't already built around needing a guy like DeMar. And then, you know, you, a team that wants him probably needs to win right now. And it's, it's just hard to find... It's really hard to find a fit. With Zach, I think it's it's really easy to find a fit. I think there's going to be suitors lining up if we were willing to trade him. And it really just comes down to if you trade Zach, you have to trade DeMar and Vooch. And I think, honestly, if you trade DeMar and Vooch, you probably also end up having to trade Zach because I don't think Zach's going to want to stay here. If if we go into full rebuild, he's gone. So it's kind of it becomes this all or nothing thing. And I'm not going to talk about the rebuild too much because I know we're not going to, right? A front office just said, we're not going to rebuild. So with that said, I don't think you can trade DeMar, Vooch, or Zach. There might be some window to trade DeMar if you could get two role players that better fit, you know, with the guys you have, you know, someone who's a shooter and someone who's a defender. But uh, And then you hope that Patrick Williams is able to fit, pick up his offense with more opportunities and that the team with more ball movement is going to be able to um, generate better shots for guys. And I think that'll be interesting going back to my first point of discussing how the Bulls play offense and defense where they don't actually pass the ball a whole lot. They have really low turnovers. They always get back on defense. You know, a lot of that is really kind of due to DeMar. If DeMar leaves, you know, you're, and you end up with more shooting around the perimeter, you're probably going to start running into a higher turnover offense. You're going to start moving the ball around a little bit more. You're going to have a lot less of one guy who can just create a good look in isolation. And that should open up more offensive opportunities, better three-point shots for guys, more chances for someone like Patrick Williams to get the ball with an advantage and more desire to then try and score. Uh, But then, you know, it probably is going to actually lower their defense (laughs) because you're not going to start generating more fast, fast break points, you know, with getting these three point shots, you're going to, it's going to be harder to get back on defense all the time. So we'll, we'll see how that kind of pans out. I, but I don't think they'll trade tomorrow. I think they keep tomorrow because it's just not going to be an offer. Like the stuff that's actually out there is going to make you want to throw up in your mouth is my feeling. 
So Patrick Williams will be the next guy since I just mentioned him now that I'll chat about. And looking at Patrick Williams, there seems to be like a lot of debate when I talk with people about him. Like he seems really polarizing for a guy that I think there's no reason to be polarizing at all about, which is there's this group of people who's like Patrick Williams is going to be a future star. And I think, I think membership in that group is like slowly declining. But then like the reverse group is like the Patrick Williams is a bust group. And I don't think that's fair either. Like Patrick Williams is just a, a guy with a pretty good floor and you know, maybe he just doesn't have a superstar ceiling, and that's fine. Like, if, if you said Patrick Williams is going to be uh, OG and Anobi, like, would that shock you? Like, you know, it seems like a guy who definitely projects into being a good defender. Slowly getting more aggressive. Obviously has a good three-point shot. Just needs to be able to, to speed up the release a little bit or get more volume, more confidence, whatever. I thought he looked a lot better as soon as he started coming off the bench. And this is where I get to where DeMar, Vooch, and Zach, it's three pretty hard guys to play and improve with, especially if people are expecting improvements to be on offense. You're not getting the ball in a lot of positions where you have advantage and lots of times to move. Those guys are pounding the ball for all the possessions. You're just not getting enough chances. And so I'm not saying we got to trade these guys to make room for Patrick Williams because there's nothing I've seen out of Patrick Williams that makes me think he's going to be a star offensive player anyway. But, you know, off the bench, I think he's, he's in a better position to get a handle on his offense. One of the things I think the Bulls could do, but they, they won't do because personalities won't let them do it, is just bring either DeMar or Zach off the bench. You know, and just, just let, let there be a little bit more balance between those guys. Like, I think, I think when you have these guys who are just going to spend so much time in isolation and pounding the ball, like, you got you to gotta separate them out a little bit. Now, Zach, I don't think is quite the ball pounder that DeMar is. Zach is much more willing to pass. But between Zach Vooch and DeMar, it's just not enough ball movement when those three guys are on the court. And so... One of the things Bulls fans have talked about is like, we're going to bring Kobe White back and we're going to make him the starting point guard. I'm like, what's Kobe White going to do for you as your starting point guard with those three on the court? I mean, I believe he'll shoot, he'll be a willing shooter, which is something the Bulls really need, you know, from the three point line while those guys are on there. But he's not going to be able to make all of the, the types of changes and adjustments, improvements he needs to make either playing with those guys. And it just kind of comes into where you're sort of in this weird box where anything you do here is you're going to reduce talent. But, you know, you're just nowhere near the, the sum of your parts and talent now. Uh, so anyway, back to Pat Williams. I, I feel pretty positive about Pat Williams. I think he's going to be like a 15 to $20 million type player when he's a free agent. Like someone's going to look at him and go like, wow, great body. Can probably defend a lot of positions. You know, need, maybe needs a little confidence or whatever, but good shooter. And I, I think like he's going to be a really solid, solid starting caliber player just probably not going to be a star player and he's not a bust either like it's it's a fine outcome uh and then we'll drift back into kobe white since we talked about him i think kobe white might be one of the few players i can ever think of where like his stats were just down across the board everywhere and yet everyone who watched him just thinks but he was so much better <laughs> and i think that's true the biggest thing for me watching kobe white is his ball handling this year compared to last year it just looks so much tighter so not making all the same loose turnovers, not like half losing the ball all the time. Just just looks so much more in control of the ball. His court awareness is better. His defense is, is a lot better. You know, he's, he's fighting through screens really well now. I question, like I said, how he fits in with the starting lineup. Obviously, we need some of those things. But he's not like a lockdown defender. He's not a Caruso out there or anything like that. But he, he's become a solid two-way player, and I think – I think a lot of teams would be like, yeah, I would love this guy coming off my bench. 
you know, like a guy who, if, if Zach was out for a while, he could probably carry the scoring load and could like step up and it wouldn't be as good as Zach, but could pile points onto the board and could, could do a lot of similar things. And then could come off the bench and do a lot of things for you. And is, is maybe solid now on both ends of the court. I think what I like about Kobe white is I don't feel he takes things off the table anymore. Like if you've ever heard the table philosophy of like, what do you bring to the table and what do you take off the table? So like DeMar brings isolation scoring to the table, but he takes defense off the table. Kobe White doesn't take anything off the table. A solid rebounder for his position, good court vision, good passer, good ball handler, good shooter, you know, can kind of do a little bit of everything from everywhere now. He's just not really taking anything off the table anymore. Now it's like, yeah, you can plug this guy in. He could probably fit with a lot of different players. He's, he's a guy that is like a, not a star player, but a good guy to have on your roster now. And so I think the Bulls will try to keep him. It'll be interesting to see what his market looks like next year because I think that could be all over the board. Uh, Derek Jones Jr. is the next guy I want to chat about. So one, I would say if you could classify me as a Billy Donovan defender. I think, I think most people, for whatever reason, hate, hate the head coach almost all the time. People always think like, well, whatever result we had, if we just had a different head coach, it would be better. And you could throw in any coach there. People just don't like their head coach most of the time. There's, I think very few exceptions to that. I think Donovan is a solid coach. I don't think he's like a premier coach. Like I don't think he's top five, six in the league. But I think there's only a few coaches in the NBA that are premier coaches that make a huge meaningful difference. And the rest are sort of like also ran like, yeah, they're, they're kind of like all in a similar clump. And then there's a few at the bottom where you're like, who let you be a head coach? Like, like Jim Boylan is in that like kind of like classification. Like what, what are we even doing here? But there's not that many like that. And, I, and Donovan is not like that. Donovan is in that group of like, yep, this guy is totally fine. He knows what he's doing. He manages player relationships. Well, you know, he, he's a smart guy. He, Whenever you hear him talk about basketball, he, he knows what he's doing. He makes trade-offs that are, you know, are intentional and, and make sense. And you know, I, I look at the group of players he has and their strengths and weaknesses, and I, I don't look and go, wow, this is, this is a guy who should have gotten so much more out of this grouping. Like I, I, think, I think Donovan's a solid coach. So I gave you my impassioned defense of Billy Donovan there. And the one exception is I'm like, but Derek Jones Jr., what the hell? What the hell? How does this guy not play more for the Chicago Bulls? Like, I, I just, I just don't understand it because like ostensibly he, he adds a lot of things that they need. Like they, they don't have good shot blocking. Derek Jones Jr. Pretty good shot blocker. I mean, not, not maybe elite because he's, he's, you know, kind of a guard forward, maybe, maybe small forward, power forward in this NBA, not, not a center or anything like that. Not going to play at the rim, but he's, he's a good defender. He is disruptive. He's athletic. He's smart. He makes good basketball cuts on offense. Like, I think he makes good offensive decisions. He can't generate any of his own offense. But the Bulls just always look good when he's on the court. I feel like they just always look good when he's on the court. And lo and behold, if you actually look at his plus-minus numbers, the Bulls are always good when he's on the court. They always do great when he's on the court. He's actually the number one plus-minus guy in the team of guys who play regular minutes on the court. And so why are you just not... Like, why have you not experimented more with this? Like, he's, he's not letting you down. Like, good things always happen when he's on the court, and it passes the eye test. Like, like all of the good things that you see Derek Jones Jr. do are what causes that plus minus. It's not like a guy who just happens to be out there, and he's just not with, like, the bad group or whatever. And so I just, I just, don't, know, just don't know what's going on there. I really don't. I, I just feel like Derek Jones Jr. should have a much bigger role than he had you know, like I said, he solves a lot of the Bulls' defensive needs, 
and they just don't have him out there. And and I think that hopefully that changes. That's that's actually maybe my number one. If I was if I was to list like the things I think Donovan could have done better this year. And again, I, I hate second guessing rotations because it's a little bit of I can look at a huge swath of evidence and then look at it in hindsight and say, yeah, you should have done this instead without knowing how that would go. Like maybe you'd try that and it sucked. But like if I use that exercise, which is unfair to the head coach, and that's why everyone hates the head coach. <laughs> and, and so I, I think this is unfair, but I'm going to do it anyway. Derek Jones Jr. not playing more to me is one of those things. Like just seems like he should have played more. Andre Drummond seems like he could have played more to me and should have played more to me. And the Drummond one, I'm going to be a little bit less firm on because there's some weird stuff going on with Drummond. It doesn't always seem mentally checked in. And so I kind of get that despite the Bulls desperately needing what he could do at times and despite them playing well when he's on the floor, I sort of get what's going on there. Like I think that kind of kind of makes sense. And so maybe, maybe Drummond's a little bit questionable. But the other one to me is I'm like, you probably shouldn't have started IO so long. I get why you tried it. But you probably shouldn't have done it. Probably should have moved off that faster. Uh, probably should have moved Crusoe into the starting lineup earlier. Crusoe was like a perfect fit with our starters. And then Io maybe could have done a little bit better off the bench. I thought he, he did play a little better once he went to the bench. And then Patrick Williams, I don't know who else you would have started, but I think Derek Jones Jr. would have been a good bet. But Patrick Williams, I think, would have developed a lot better if he played off the bench. Uh, this whole time rather than playing as a starter. I think he was really limited in the starting lineup. And I think Derek Jones Jr. Uh, would have done a lot better. I think actually this team just started Caruso, Derek Jones Jr., and then our big three. And then our bench unit was kind of like a combination of Kobe, Io, Patrick, and uh, Drummond. And then, you know, whatever. You're not going to take all your starters out at once. I think that would have been an intriguing look for this team. And that, that would be what I would maybe try to roll out next year. Now, again, I only got to see it one way. So maybe you try this thing I just said, and it's an absolute disaster. And then you're like, nah, nah, that wasn't the thing. Might not be the thing. Um, but, but either way, Derek Jones Jr., I thought just, just really great at helping us gain extra possessions, active defender, smart defender, great plus minus guy. Just if he could shoot, he would be a tremendous player, but he can't shoot, but he's still a guy that fits really well with a lot of the things we need and should have been played more. Uh, last guy I'm going to talk about is Alex Caruso. Arguably Caruso was like the Bulls MVP. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, it's like nuts. It's like, just he made so much happen defensively, and he was so critical to tying up the weaknesses tying, you know, that Demar and Vuce have in overcome, helping the team overcome them. Just absolutely critical. The one thing I'd love to see from, from Crusoe is like, you, you got to shoot those threes. You just got to shoot them. I know his percentages were down this year, and Crusoe's not a great shooter overall. I just feel like you just got to shoot the open ones. You just got to keep shooting the open ones, and whatever, it is what it is. You can't be scared to shoot out there. And I think that was the only, you know, real criticism uh, I would have of, of Caruso is he just seemed a little bit too scared to shoot out there. And his percentages weren't that bad. It was like 36%. Granted, your percentage is usually better when you're only shooting the most open ones. Uh, but he's absolutely critical to the Bulls formula. And I think if the Bulls lost Caruso, it would just have a tremendous impact on their ability to win. And, and that also becomes interesting because I do think he's one of the guys that you could trade and get value for. But the value to this team is really high. And so you start looking at like, yeah, if we trade a guy like Caruso and we get value for him, it's like almost a trade like that, even though he feels sort of like a minor player, is almost like saying, yeah, we're going to rebuild. Like this guy is so critical to what we do. And that, that's one of the things that makes figuring out a good direction with this team so difficult is you just don't really have a lot of assets you can move. 
and, and make things better. So the one thing I'm going to say so far, looking at this team, it kind of feels like Arturus Karnaschovas is unwilling to admit that he made any mistakes. He's just not willing to admit anything he went wrong. It can be a little bit hard to say for sure about that because he had this press conference and he said all these things and I could project it into, I know I'm not allowed to rebuild. Like I, I don't want to do that. That's not what my ownership group wants. And I know I can't really add anything to this team because we have no assets left to really add. And so what I've tried to do is describe a situation where this team is better than you think it is and running it back makes the most sense because that's really what I'm going to do because I don't really have options to do other things and make it better. And I, th I think there's some truth to that. Like running it back is the best option for maximizing wins next year. And if you don't want to take a step backwards, that's kind of like the direction you have to take. And even if you want to trade these guys later, running it back might be the best option. And then you trade midseason, you trade later. Like if you're not going to go into rebuild, it's hard to come up with an option that's really a lot better than that and doesn't have you spend the tax, which the Bulls aren't going to do. They're not going to spend the tax. I've said this a lot of times in regards to the tax. Really simply, there's three scenarios that kind of exist out there in my head. Maybe, maybe four, but they're kind of overlap. So one is I'm a contender and I'm going to pay the tax so I can stay a contender. I'm going to pay the tax so I can make an iterative improvement and become an even better contender. Those are two scenarios. If you're in that scenario, you just teams pay it, right? You're, you have a chance. The next scenario is like, I have the opportunity to acquire a franchise changing player, but I'm going to have to pay the tax to do it. I think most franchises would pay the tax in that scenario as well. It's a little bit uncommon that that scenario comes up because usually if you're acquiring a franchise changing talent, uh, like there's restrictions on all this other stuff that become bigger when, you're, when the tax is involved. So it's harder to match salary and trade and whatever. So we've seen that one like less frequently, but, but sure, I think, I think teams will do that. What fans seem to want is I'm a first round exit team with no reasonable path to win. And I want to pay the tax to add a seventh guy on the roster. And no one in the NBA does that. And that's where the bulls are. Like that's just flat out where they are. So they're not going to pay the tax. And you can be upset about that. It's fine. I don't, I'm like, I don't care. Not, not for me to legislate, which makes you mad, but that's just what every team does. Now, do I believe if the bulls get into scenario one or two, where it's really important for the owner to pay the tax, do I think the bulls will open the pocketbooks? I'm super skeptical of it. I think it might be a big limitation in the future too. Is it a big limitation now? I don't think so. I don't think it really makes a difference now. Like they're, they're not in the area where any team would pay the tax. They'd be operating under the same rules as every other team in the league, basically. In the future, it could be a huge difference. But whatever, that is what it is. Anyway, so, you know, our, our tourists has gone back to saying, we're going to run it back effectively. And it just makes me think one of two things is true. Either one, uh, this guy is a complete idiot. Just complete idiot. Two, he's just trying to polish a turd and he, he, he knows what he's going to do this year because he knows his options are so limited. And so he's got to make that seem like as good an option as possible, even though he knows it's a crap option. I, th I think that's probably more true. I think what has to happen though is Michael Reinsdorf at some point is going to have to question whether he made a mistake with Arturis because so far Arturis doesn't seem to be willing to make, to admit to making any mistakes with this roster. The one thing he's learned so far is he needs to be patient. So if you've not learned anything more than that after what's gone on here, 
that, that means really ownership needs to take a quick look at this. And there's no reason we need to keep this guy. People feel like, oh, yeah, we, we got You don't have to keep these guys 20 years just because Faxon and Foreman were here for so long and Krause was here for so long. You can fire him now, right? Like general managers don't have these huge five-year massive contracts that you can't get out of. I don't, I don't know what his deal is, but like it's not so much money that you can't get rid of him and bring someone else in if you just decided, oh, wow, this just isn't the guy. And there's plenty of evidence that that might be true. So we'll see what happens there. All right. My random super old MBA topics. <laughs> so I apologize. Some of these, some of these are going back a long time. So, uh, you know, earlier on we had a bunch of weird block charge calls that were resulting in, in pretty significant injuries. And people started talking about, should you remove the charge from the game? And I thought it was interesting to talk about a little later, like the emotionality of that moment of, you know, whoever, no, no one went out for the whole playoffs. So now we kind of moved past it, but, you know, thinking about that, my thought is, yes, remove the charge from the game. Like, why do we want to play where someone slides in at the last second to just stand in front of someone and hopes they get knocked down? Like, what, what, what value does that add to the game of basketball? I'm not saying remove the offensive foul. I'm, you know, like, you can, and you can, maybe it's still a charge when you have an offensive foul. But, like, save the offensive foul call for when the offensive player, you know, if he runs over someone, it's fine. You'd call it, but the guy has to get there way in advance. Like if you're not trying to play defense, you got to be there for like planted for like one full step, at least before the other guy gets there, you know, maybe two full steps. And if he still runs into you, fine. But otherwise the bang, bang ones where you're trying to slide there, nah, just get rid of all those. Uh, the other thing I'd say, though, is when you do this, you also have to get rid of get rid of all the blocking fouls where someone is retreating and the offensive player is, like, running into them and then generates contact. Just get rid of all those. Like, you just that play is out. You know, like, if you're, if you're retreating and you're kind of competing for the same space and you guys have body contact, that's not a foul. You, got, you kind of have to have foul on the arm or you have to have, like, extensive body contact where you move into someone to push them off the spot. So I just generally just get rid of a lot of those foul calls. You know, and then, and then I think that would be to me the good solution there. Maybe not entirely. We had like this like really crazy amount of like oddball physical contact. A couple of kicks to the groin. Um, I should say a kick to the groin, an elbow to the groin, and then and Draymond Green stomping on someone. And the league started up this like, well, based on Draymond's past, we're gonna suspend him, but we're not gonna suspend these other guys. I think Draymond's like thing was worse than the other guys. It is also a little bit weird, like Embiid. You know, he didn't make contact with Claxton with his kick, but if he did make contact, it would have been, you know, a lot worse. I, mean, I should say, if he made worse contact, it would have been a lot worse. Uh, you know, Draymond Singh was so intentional, had so much chance of severe injury. It Maybe the NBA is just like, we care about punches, but we don't care about other stuff. You know, I go back to like the Carmelo Anthony fight a long time ago where Melo got suspended for like 15 games or whatever it was. And I'm like, Stomping on a player on the ground probably has a better chance of hurting them significantly than like the punches that have thrown. Like Killian Hayes kind of like sort of quasi threw a punch and got suspended for three games earlier. And so maybe it's just punches they just they just don't want. But this other incidental stuff, they're like, you know, if a guy's standing over you and you kick your leg up, you know, it's a little different. Like, that, I don't know. I thought it was weird, though. I thought Draymond Green was deserving of his, his suspension. I know that was... You're really up in the air. I was surprised at how many media people didn't think he was and thought this was significant instigation. I 
But anyway, I thought it was I thought it was warranted. And then they're like, well, you can't take into account his history while doing this. Why not? Why can't you do that? If if you rob someone and then rob someone again, do you think they would take that into account? Like absolutely they would. And Draymond Green like plays the game at a more physical level than everyone else is allowed to because like people have just gotten used to it and they let him go and do more stuff than he's supposed to. What they should do is just not let him get away with all these other things. And you know, just he you should just not get all this extra leeway. He gets every single game. But when something happens, I think it's totally fair to take history into it. And I think in this case too, the fact that he punched Poole in the face, like extraordinarily violent punch and that Lee couldn't do anything, I think that was part of this. And I think that's fair too. I think it's all fair. There's, no one should shed any tears for Draymond Green. Draymond Green is not a victim. Draymond Green has probably been getting away with just, just massive amounts of illegal things his whole career in terms of like pushing people too hard, being too physical, because he's just done it enough that they've gotten used to it. And so when you go over the edge and you cross the line, then yeah, this is just the cost of playing that way all the time. It's just going to happen sometimes. So I think that was totally right. Final thoughts on the playoffs. We got Denver Suns. I predicted that Denver was going to crush the Suns through one game. That seems true. I just, I just didn't think the Suns looked good in barely being able to beat Westbrook and Norman Powell. You know, Durant and Booker just playing insane minutes, and I think they're just going to wear down, and I just don't think they have the horses. They just don't have enough depth. What I've really seen in this playoffs is depth. Two things. One, if you don't have depth, it's really exposed. More so than I think I've ever thought about it in the playoffs before. Usually we just talk about the stars. But this year, I don't know if the coaches are just better, if they're just more talented offensive players in the league. But you throw out someone who can't defend, and you are attacked right away. And they just just kill you with it. So I just don't think the Suns have the depth. When I look at the 76ers and the Celtics, I thought this was going to be an easy one for the Celtics. I, I, I think I would take the Celtics to win the title at this point. A little disappointed that it took them six to close out Atlanta, who I don't think is really all that good, but I, I still think they're probably uh, the best team. Denver is, is right there, too. And then we don't know who's going to win yet, though you'll probably know by the time you listen to this, between the Warriors and the Kings. Rooting for the Kings. think the Warriors are going to win, but we'll see how it goes. Um, winner of that takes on the Lakers. I don't think, I don't think either of those teams are really going to be contenders. A little bit tough. Like I could, I could see the Warriors doing it. I could kind of see the Lakers doing it. I can't see the Kings doing it. I feel like the Kings are just going to be a worse version of the Nuggets than the Nuggets if they get there. Could maybe see one of those other teams doing it, but you know, it's interesting watching the Lakers because you expect it to be the LeBron and AD show, but. Really, they've just been getting a lot of contributions. D'Angelo Russell had the big closeout game. Uh, Reeves has looked really solid out there. You know, it's interesting how much those guys have deferred to other players on the team, you know, and, and not kind of what you would expect. In the East, then you got Miami and New York. Uh, I don't think the winner of that series has any chance really to get past the next round. Uh, if they do get past the next round, I, I think they would be massive like underdogs. Whatever. The winner of that group is going to be a massive underdog every series they play. So I, I don't think there's going to be a winner there. I think that's going to be a fun series. You know, with, with Randall, I don't know what his health status is, but that first game kicks off in like 30 minutes. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Kind of feel like I like Miami in that series, which is nuts. Miami, is, you know, it's an eight seed, and you can kind of see how they could get to the Eastern Conference Finals, like after beating Milwaukee. And last topic, Jimmy Butler – 
Uh, did did way too long a segment of him on the Big Red Bus, <laughs> which this will probably be out first, even though it was recorded second. There's been a lot of new, new renewed talk about uh, Bulls screwed up not keeping Jimmy Butler. And I'll just say what I've always said. This is Jimmy Butler's third team after the Bulls. When he was leaving the Bulls, he was saying, it's either the coach or me. He's fighting with Derrick Rose. He's fighting with Joakim Noah. Um, he goes to the Timberwolves. He fights with Carl Anthony Towns. He fights with Wiggins. Doesn't apparently get along well enough with Tibbs. Goes to the 76ers, tells them, you can't win without me. Won't get along with Ben Simmons. No one got anything for Jimmy Butler except the Bulls in trade. Jimmy Butler goes to like some other team other than Miami, and like that might be the end of Jimmy Butler's story as a meaningful player because he just couldn't get along with people. And, you know, whatever. Jimmy has been phenomenal in Miami. He found his perfect place, his perfect niche, the coach that wants to run the whole team Jimmy's way. It's been fantastic. Uh, was there some window for that to work in Chicago? Maybe. Uh, I wouldn't say no. I mean, like I feel like the Bulls, when you look at it, they made a mistake. But you also look, if they had kept Lowry and developed him to his potential, and they kept Levine, and but they did keep Levine, and had him at his potential, and they kept this young core around them, and they had drafted Halliburton, and more or less what I think the old front office would have done, it might be a really good team right now, and you might not even care. But yeah, I think it was a mistake not keeping Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler in the playoffs is just a whole other thing. He was a guy I would have never thought at the time you could win a title with. But boy, does he seem like a guy you could win a title with now if he had had the right players around him. So uh, hats off to Jimmy for, for just continuing to grind, finding his niche, niche, and then doing extremely well in it. The fact that it took him three, three teams, two really, really bad trades afterwards, and the Bulls actually got a very good return. Two young players who go on to be all-stars for him. You know, the problem wasn't the Jimmy Butler trade. The problem is how you followed up with the Jimmy Butler trade. You actually got enough assets to be a really good team afterwards. You just didn't use them correctly. And, you know, that's kind of a combination maybe of both Garpax and Arturis Karnaschovas. But there's no reason to continue to cry in your milk over Jimmy Butler. Like, it wasn't an insane decision at the time. You may have thought it was, but it really wasn't. This was a guy, like, you only see what happens one way, but you think of the realm of possibilities. This guy's like, maybe most of this time, you think it's like the 15th best player in the league. You got two young all-stars for him. Like, you just, you just didn't make the right follow-up moves afterwards. You had, you had a short time window. He was going to be here on a Supermax if he stayed. You know, it's okay to want Jimmy Butler on this team and wish he was still here. Absolutely get it. Completely agree. I'd love to be rooting for Jimmy Butler right now. You know, but yeah, just just let it go. Like, it, like it's it's not indicative of the problems the Bulls have today. Maybe I'll put it that way. And so, you know, it's just kind of like like whining about your ex from ten years ago. There's just no reason to keep talking about it. Like it like there's a lot of extra context that people ignore when they talk about it. And even with that context, I feel like, yep. Yeah, now that we know kind of what happened, I'd have kept Butler and worked around that context, fired Hoiberg, brought in a better coach, you know, done whatever else. But that context was still pretty significant, and you don't know that Jimmy was going to be worth it. In the end, Jimmy's attitude is like Michael Jordan. And, and Michael Jordan was just a tremendous a-hole on the court. He hated everyone who didn't, you know, grind $5 trillion to one to win. He did, just had to be competitive at everything. Couldn't couldn't tolerate a lot of other people on the team. Jimmy Butler's got the same attitude. He doesn't have Michael Jordan's talent. 
And that's maybe the difference there. But what we have seen is he's got enough talent that with that attitude, like if you could have worked within those confines, you know, you could have had something pretty, pretty special here too. So it's, it's a bummer. It didn't work out, but it's, it's not as bad as you think. And it's not as bad as people make it out to be. It's just, they, they ignore all of the other flags and assume like, well, it could have never gone bad the other way, but it really could have. It really could have been a disaster where the bulls are now forced to rebuild. They have Jimmy and he just like freaks out and we end up in a situation where he demands a trade and we get Josh Richardson back. Like it's totally realistic possibility. Anyway, that will do it for this edition of the bulls beat. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully we'll get you an episode every two weeks or so. And uh, yeah, we'll have a good summer.